welcome to the Giving Gifts Podcast, a place for real people to share real stories, navigating how to use their gifts in this world. I've been thinking about how to introduce today's guest because it seems easy to impress you with the degrees that are held or the resume that is had, and yet, in a lot of ways, it doesn't do justice to the intelligence and commitment of Rafiq Wabi. Rafiq is an abolitionist. You're going to learn a lot more about what that means throughout this next hour. And as you listen, I just want to ask that you do not let these words go in one ear and out the next. There may be some things you totally agree with and even some ideas that you do not. And that's okay. Just let these words sit with you for a minute. What you are about to hear is really the process of learning how to stand for something. Learning how to care with your entire being. Learning what works and what doesn't and what to do when your whole world seems like it's kind of crashing in. Rafiq is not only in that process himself, he is in that process with and and for an entire marginalized group of human beings in a system that has rejected and dehumanized so many. The Giving Gifts podcast is a place for real people to share real stories because I think it is within stories that real change is an actual possibility. My name is Rafiq Wabi. Um, that's the, uh, I guess, more uh, English American way to say that, but the way, you know, my Egyptian way to say that is uh, Rafiq Wahbi. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I guess I'm going to start just by sharing a little bit about myself and who I am. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhat of a condensed version that's designed to bring us to where I'm at today in life and kind of what I'm up to and uh, what I've been thinking about. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, some important things, my, my family and I are from Cairo, Egypt, and we're from, um, a small minority of, of a minority of, of Egyptian Christians, um, a group of Protestant Christians. And, um, that's really important to us in our story, um, and, and to who I am and kind of shaping how I think about things and, uh, the tradition that I come from and the, the people that I come from. And, um, just a lot of the things that, you know, you'll eventually hear me talk about and things that I'm doing um, is stuff that's been done and practiced in my family for generations. And, uh, you know, th- it's not just random, like we're, we're, you know, teaching our, our, you know, our sons and, and daughters, these things. So it's, you know, it's really, it's been important for me to, you know, continue to figure out what that means and looks like for me. Um, and that, you know, it's a whole nother conversation, but um, just to say that, you know, we're from there and uh, we immigrated to uh, California when I was about five years old um, in 1995. And, um, um, ever since then, you know, we, we moved around a couple of times, but we've been in, in Southern California our whole life. Um, and um, I, you know, I was a, not a very good student and I was pretty distracted. Um, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD. I'm like, I'm actually getting, um, seeing a doctor later today. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll check back in. Um, and so I, and I was not very good at school. Um, actually, I, you know, I remember as early as like fifth grade getting like what the equivalent of like a C or a D is it was like the number I was just getting like straight twos out of five and like you know the last day of like fifth grade I like actually changed my grades because I didn't want my parents like see I was doing so bad so I 
and then I would always hide my report cards. Like I was just a terrible student. I didn't care about school, had no interest in it. Um, and in high school, um, I was uh, going to these week-long uh, you know, uh, trips to um, San Francisco in the Tenderloin District with a youth with a mission with my church. And um, we, we, you know, in the Tenderloin District, if you don't know where that is, it's in San Francisco. And um, it's, you know, the square block mile radius um, where there's just, uh, where kind of the city has pushed a lot of people who are unhoused, people who use drugs, um, sex workers. Um, and it's just, it, you know, it's been a, a kind of a, you know, an area that's been heavily dent, uh, populated with a lot of that and just kind of pushing people to the side, criminalizing them, um, taking that approach. So when I was there as, you know, as a freshman in high school, um, I really uh, began to, um, you know, I think it was a combination of things. I think I was very confused. It was my first time to really be, um, to, to sit down with someone who was unhoused and to have a conversation with them and to, you know, try to use like my logical means of explaining things away and that didn't work. Um, I tried to use spiritual means and my faith and that didn't really work. I tried to use, you know, anything I could and it didn't really make sense. Um, I'm realizing this is very long, so we may want to come back. Um, and, um, and so anyways, I think I spent the next couple of years as a high schooler really, really feeling like this is something I want to commit myself to. And what that thing was, I think at the time I thought it was, you know, homelessness, maybe mental health, drug use. Um, but I think I was just really, uh, I wanted to commit myself towards, you know, working against injustice, broadly speaking, um, things that I, I looked at and said, that's not fair and that's not the way it should be. And it can be different. Um, I think that's at the core of what I was interested in and, and had a heart for even in, in high school or in middle school. Um, and, and so I think going through that and then finally coming to the realization that I could use like school to to help advance those things that school could be a place to like learn some skills, gain um, some connections and things like that. And so that's when I, I you know, kind of started to take school a little bit more seriously. Um, and at the time I was surrounded by people who were um, very interested in medicine. And, and I think even till now, like it's just a very big thing in our culture and in Middle Eastern culture and a lot of other cultures that becoming a doctor is just a very big and important thing. And it's one way to kind of uh, prove yourself. It's a way to show that like your, you know, the sacrifices of your family and your parents are worth it. Um, oftentimes, because the truth is people like me could not get advanced degrees like this, or if we did, it was very difficult. Um, you know, it's, it was very common for my, my parents and my parents' friends to just, you know, have them fail their class, like their professors would fail their classes because they were Christian. And I know that that sounds very weird for if you're listening, but, you know, in Egypt, like it's just, it's a re reversal. Um, you know, the majority of the country is, is Muslim and the minority is Christian. And so the dynamics function a little differently. But um, so I think, you know, pursuing education was really important. Um, so I, you know, started on a path. I was pre-med for a while. Um, and this is where, I, you know, I'll fast forward a bit. And, you know, there's a whole bu different bunch of different parts of my story, but I think once I realized that school was a way for me to do this, you know, I kind of went pretty hard and, you know, I ended up doing an undergraduate degree in, um, in neuroscience and was planning to, you know, go into medicine, realized that public health was probably where I was more interested in and kind of thinking about systems and structures. But I think the part I want to focus on is really from that point on, honestly, for the next 10 years of my life, um, and I think, you know, for a lot of millennials, you know, for the next 10 years, I just went really hard. And looking back now, um, it was pretty unclear what I was really working at or what I was doing. It was much more, I'm passionate about social justice and whatever I can kind of get my hands on, I would just do and, and do really hard. 
And, and for, for a while, I think that was like, great. And that was, you know, I did a whole bunch of things. I, you know, I, I did some work around homelessness. I did, I uh, lived in the Philippines for two years and, and did stuff for, uh, around drug use and, and nutrition and health there. And, um, you know, it's uh, stuff now in prisons, but I think, um, you know, something that has been, uh, you know, a struggle is when you, when you do a lot of this work, um, you start to kind of ask the question of like, where am I actually going? What am I building? What am I working towards? Um, because like after 10 years of doing this, like I, I really burnt out and that's, you know, what I'll, I'll eventually get to, but um, it wasn't just a burnout in terms of like, I'm tired, but I think it was um, a lot of it was very existential and not um, kind of seeing the change I wanted to see or having a good idea of like what change looks like and what my role is in that. Um, and I think that's, that's something that um, has kind of become central to what I've been rethinking and going through now. There's so many different areas that you have brought up of injustice and also caring about people and also incorporating your own education to do that well. At what point did you identify the direction you would want to take that? Hmm. And how did you get there? Yeah. After coming back from the Philippines, I did my master's in public health. Um, and, and, and after that, uh, ended up applying um, to a PhD program in public health as well um, and, and starting that. And I think in that transition, um, that's, you know, like uh, 2020, um, you know, January 2020, um, kind of the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think like up until that point, I had you know, not necessarily a clear vision of where I was going, but I think there was always like steps, right? Like, okay, I did my undergrad, I got some training with that. Um, I went to the Philippines and did, you know, incredible work there, gained some, you know, incredible experience. And it's, you know, it's hard to like minimize that experience in, in a sentence, but, um, and then I did a master's. And so like, there are like these stepwise things that I do and new training that I get. Um, and I think part of it is it felt like that that was like going to be an endless cycle that there's like, there's always a next step. There's always a next phase. And it's, it's like, there's this allure of when you do this, it'll open up the door to this. It'll unlock this. You'll feel this way. Um, something like that. Right. And I think eventually I started to catch on that. That's like, that's not the way it worked for like several reasons. Um, you know, I think one was in the midst of the pandemic, um, uh, all that was happening with, with George Floyd and, and his murder and the protests in that year. Um, I think slowly my kind of uh, structure of like how I understood how the world were, I mean, like really like a lot of things like started to really crumble and, you know, it happened like with a whole bunch of things, right? Like, you know, I had, I was like seeing someone at the time and I like was really into that and it just didn't work out the way I wanted to. Um, I ended up like, starting a PhD program that was not the one that I had envisioned. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any funding. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the things I had worked towards felt like I was like starting over from scratch. Um, there was, there was a whole bunch of things and other, like some other personal things that were kind of going on where I, I kind of felt like whatever it was that I was like trying to build it, like all of a sudden like collapsed and fell apart and like didn't even exist anymore. So like relationships I had, um, and then like, I, you know, as this is happening, like I kind of start to spiral and I wasn't doing very well. And, you know, so many of the things I realized that were happening to me completely out of my control. Um, and that started to really, you know, change me. And, you know, when I was going through this, 
I'm just like in my room doing a PhD and like, I'm looking at my computer 12, however many hours a day. And I'm just, you know, doing the stuff that I do, which is reading and writing and thinking about, you know, prison and incarceration and people overdosing and people getting criminalized and unhoused people being, you know, pushed out. So it's, you know, all that stuff together, it creates not a very good environment to respond to structures and things around you kind of falling apart. And so I, I, you know, I think um, to kind of like, you know, to, to kind of like follow through with what was going on was like, I, you know, I, I thought like, all right, here are the next steps, you know, here's the next thing I do and it will prepare me to do this. Um, and that's not really like where I found myself. So I think, you know, uh, after these 10 years of chasing after whether it's degrees or experience or whatever it is and thinking, you know, I'll keep going and advancing and I'll get to the next step and that will allow me to do this. And I kind of like looked up and looked around and it was like, I'm an unfunded PhD student who has to drive Uber to like pay for groceries. Um, I like kind of feel like I'm not really doing very much. I'm like extremely depressed. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not like, I mean, none of it. I mean, it just didn't like make any sense. Like I was like, what, what is, what am I even doing anymore? And I, I think in the middle of that too, like I, you know, I just got really angry and I think rage was kind of the, the thing that I went to. Um, I had maybe phases of isolation and, and that was always there, but I think rage is really what I began to tap into. And that honestly gave me, um, you know, a certain type of uh, reward in some ways, honestly, that like, okay, you're not going to listen. You're not going to do this. You're not going to, I'll just rage and I'll, I'll exercise that like fully. And um, that was not good. And um you know, I can look back now and say like, you know, that was very damaging and it was damaging to like myself and to relationships around me. Um, I also though, like, you know, a friend of mine, like kind of helped me realize that like, yeah, it wasn't good. It's damaging. But again, there was like a certain sense of satisfaction or a certain sense of like, I can finally say what I want to say. And um, I don't really care what the consequences are anymore. I'll suffer the consequences, but I just need to say this or I want need to do this or whatever it is. Um, so I think in, in the middle of all of that happening and, you know, like as like I'm having meltdowns or whatever else it was, um, I think I was starting to kind of uh, find um, the, the, this, you know, practice, this movement um, of abolition and prison and police abolition. And, uh, you know, it, in some ways, it feels like, uh, you know, somewhat of a religious experience. I, you know, sometimes I liken it to that. I, I think um, I don't like doing that too much, but I think there are similarities of like, I found something that has helped me kind of like uh, realize certain things about myself and the way that I exist in the world and how I do my work that has been like really enlightening and helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I, just to kind of give like a brief definition of what I think understand um, abolition to be. Um, this is a quote from uh, Miriam Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us. And she says, um, prison industrial complex abolition is a political vision, a structural analysis of oppression and a practical organizing strategy. While some people might think of abolition as primarily a negative project, let's tear everything down tomorrow and hope for the best. PIC or prison industrial complex abolition is a vision of a restructured society in a world where we have everything we need. Food, shelter, education, health, art, beauty, 
clean water, and more things that are foundational to our personal and community safety. Um, this definition is like, I think one of the best ones for me, because I, you know, in my, in the work I've done, whether it be around, um, you know, criminal injustice or uh, overdose or whatever else it is, I've primarily had an approach where I, I see, and I'm very good at this, I can identify what's wrong. And, you know, one of the exercises we do is like a power mapping exercise. So I can, I'll pinpoint who's in charge, who has the power, who has the connections, where does it lie, um, and, and tell you what's wrong, what are they doing wrong, I can critique them, I can use their language, I mean, like, this is, this is like, I'm very good at this, and it's, not, I mean, I'm not like, this is not like the most exciting thing to be good at, but I've done it for a long time, and like, I'm kind of annoying, actually. And I, I've realized I'm annoying with, because like I've reached a point now where I, I don't control it as much and I'm not very, sometimes I'm not strategic. And um, I'm, I'm, of course I'm wrong. I'm wrong a lot of the time, but this is also something that like I, I do somewhat um, thoughtfully actually. And, and so when I do that, my next step is to make sure that people know that it's wrong and that like people understand why it's wrong. But what I usually do is I look towards the, the, the oppressor or whoever it is, the one doing it, and I want them to know what they're doing is wrong. And that's kind of what I did for 10 years a lot of the time is like I see an issue and I'm either yelling at people to do it, with, like to join me and yell with me, or I'm yelling at the people who are the ones actually like producing these issues. And what abolition started to do for me, and like this is where it's it's just so, um, I mean, no, it's it's. Uh, it's manufactured, like it's a part of, uh, you know, wanting to push back against the demands of abolition is to make it seem like it's this uh, very ethereal, uh, you know, not thought out and just destructive kind of movement of like, just destroy everything. And that's what she says, right? She said, some people might think of abolition as primarily a negative project. And when she says some, she means some abolitionists even think of it. I know people who are just like, just destroy, destroy, destroy. And eventually you get to a point where you say like, well, what are you, what are you building? And sometimes that is used to like quell opposition and to quell like activists who are voicing like, you know, concern for something. Like it's not always my job to tell you what I'm going to be doing instead, but the project of abolition, the larger movement is to say that this is the way it is. We don't want that the way it is, is actually harmful and creates the problems that we see. And instead we can do it this way. Here's how we get there. We, and so that entire framework has been honestly very healing for me because it says there's a reason why shit is the way it is. It's not random. And this is something that I think has been very frustrating for me is because like because I'm good at identifying why things, you know, like in a structural analysis and like I read and I do all this stuff and I have a sense of why something is. And I realize it's not random. It's very thought out, actually, like the way oppression works, the way that society is structured and when bad things, it's not that they found their way in them. They were built inside of them, like very intentionally. And I like, you know, I've reached a point now where, you know, there's that meme from, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia where I forget the name of the characters, like it's like pin uh, pin board and all these things going everywhere. And like, I feel like I'm like, like that nowadays, like I connect things. I'm like, here's how this system is connected to this. 
And I get when sometimes you know, people look at me and they're just like, dude, this guy's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I am. But I, you know, I think like for me, when I see this and understand this, it's not just random. And there, there's, there's history behind how it came to be this way. And there are people then who have said, I don't want it to be this way and I'm going to actively resist it. And so a part of, part of like where I've started to now, you know, rethink my life and rethink how I approach this work um, is, is to think about, you know, when I see an issue and when I see something that really troubles me and bothers me, um, I, I have to like ask myself, like, number one, like, why is that? How do I understand this problem? Like, what is actually happening? You know, you turn on the TV, you, you, you're on Twitter, and I, I use Twitter a lot and I talk about it a lot because it, it just has become a format and a place for me to like think about things and to, it's not a for, it's not a place for me to like have conversations with people. I don't think it's like a space to like learn from each other in that way and, and like how I, I get my news. But like, I think um, using it a lot, it was also really bad for me because it was, you know, the internet is already one way we can access, you know, the terrible things that goes on in this world and we're very inundated with it. But I like, I curated my information. So like I have, I mean, I, I essentially have created a list of people who tackle almost every issue in the world. I mean, not almost mm-hmm. every, like there's, there's so many, but like a lot of them, like way too many of them. And I like, I see it every day and it's really, really terrible things. Things that like, I understand why you don't need to see that every day. And I like was in that for maybe two years. Like I'm just like mm-hmm. on that app a lot. And I'm very inundated with terrible things that go on in this world. And the nature of my work, just to kind of explain a little bit more is, um, you know, I, I think about specifically in, in the realm of criminalization and, and the criminal ju- injustice system and the carceral system is specifically around drug use and mental health um, issues. And thinking about I mean, the people who have very serious mental health issues who are, you know, have a, you know, or neurodivergent and they have things like paranoid schizophrenia or whatever it is. And, you know, we have these mental health crises and when we think about what are, what are we supposed to do? How do we care as a community for people like that? What do we, um, how do we define and understand these things? Who is the one defining and understanding it? Um, all of that. And these stories are, there is no bad guy and there is no good guy. It's really complicated. And I, I view these when I, when I see an event happen, when I see someone having a mental health crisis on the news and they get shot and killed by the police, it's my job to go in there and to complicate the narrative. It's not just a bad guy and the cop goes in and kills someone and save the day, no matter what. It's never that simple. So my entire you know, existence in many ways for a while was like seeped in this really like heavy stuff. I'm saying all that because I had to develop a way to either uh, understand those things. How do I deal with it? And, and one of the things like the point I want to land with this is you can't just be mad all the time at, at mm-hmm. everything. There is an infinite number of things to be mad at and an infinite number of people who are producing and reproducing these things. And you will be consumed by it. You will be consumed by rage for those things. You will be consumed by the terrible things that are going on. And one of the things that happens when you're consumed by that is you, your world becomes actually somewhat smaller. And the reason why I say that is because you kind of think that like you are living in the worst time possible. 
And part of the reason why a lot of us feel that way is because of the internet, because we have access to knowing what is going on in every corner of the world. We can, you know, have videos of people who are in the jungles of Cameroon documenting the, the, the shit that's going on there. We couldn't do that before. So we feel like we're in the worst time of our of existence, but we're just not like, dude, come on. People were like in this country alone. It was a slave trade. People were, we had a civil war. People were like, this is the most divisive we've ever been. Are you out of your goddamn mind? We had a civil war over owning black slaves. Mm-hmm. No, this is not the most divided we've been in. This is not the worst humans have done. So partially even myself is I started, I kind of started to fall into that trap because of like my own crisis, my world collapsing and just having unlimited access to all the terrible stuff that goes on in this world. And I had to find a new way to deal with it. And and kind of going back to what abolition does is it it asks important questions. Some of the questions that abolition asks is, again, what is, you know, oh, does she have it here? Um, Shoot, there's a really good part. Um, I forgot what it is, but uh, Miriam Kaba says something like, you know, she asks questions like, what is my structural analysis of, oh yeah, yeah. What is my like structural analysis of oppression? And I was like big words Mm -hmm. or whatever, but I'm, I'm, I'm essentially asking the question of why is this the way it is and that it's not random, that it is actually ordered this way for a particular reason. And it's important for us to know like why that is, because, you know, in my social justice upbringing, whatever you want to call it, I think I reached a point where I was just like, bad things happen because there's like evil, bad people who like do them like Jeff Bezos or whatever. And it's like, it was just, it was, yeah, like there's not a good dude. He's doing some terrible things. But it wasn't a good way to like understand like I don't think people are just like there's that many people just like you know causing evil and they see it and it's um so like I think there's there's some more uh, nuance to it and again like it's thinking about it structurally what is the history of it how are how much agency do individuals have over these like larger systems of oppression what role do I mean there is a role all those kinds of questions so that's the first thing is like how does it where does it you know why is this thing happening the next important thing is like, what, what have people historically been doing? Like how have people been actually fighting against this thing? I think one of the things we've gotten the habit of as like, you know, uh, millennials and maybe, you know, whatever is like, we're very passionate about these things and we want to be involved in as many issues as we can. And what we do those, we like kind of are so distant from these issues. And we like, are like, let me be involved in like 15 of them. When you do that, you kind of have no idea what people are actually doing. And if you do, it's a very like shallow level. So one of the things I started to do is I ask people like, this is an issue you really care about. And you can tell me about it. You can say, it's so messed up. This is, this is unjust. And like, this is racist. This is whatever. I'm like, okay, I've, I know that I've heard that. I've heard that like a bunch of times. So what I want to ask you now is like, what is being done about it? What has been done? What, and what is being done? And and I specifically, I want to know about the people on the ground, the grassroots, the organizers, the activists, the, the people that are not the professors, not the legislators who just take the credit. I want to know, like, who are the people who are fighting and struggling for this and failing and being suppressed? And that's what I want to know. Who has done that? What have they done? And what are they doing now? And what I found was people could not answer that question. I could not answer that question. When I started doing work around prisons, I couldn't tell you a single person in Boston who was doing that work, not one. Partially that was because 
I was the only person at my school really doing that at, at the School of Public Health. And that was also not wise because I didn't have like guidance and mentorship. But also, I couldn't tell you what who was doing that work around the city. And that's, that's not okay. So I think I realized like people, we get mad at issues. Uh, but like, to what extent are we actually wanting to be involved in, in organizing against it? So it was kind of like, understand the problem, where is it coming from? And then asking the question, what's being done? Um, and, um, and then like, am I gonna do that? Am I, do I have the, the time and desire to be involved in that type of work? So, um, you know, I guess like one example would be like, you know, I guess what I, you know, what I do around uh, prisons and whatnot, um, you know, like, are you, are you committed to, um, trying to find new ways of dealing with, you know, harm and violence? And are you committed to the, the complicated conversations? Are you committed to being labeled as whatever? Like I have a million different labels I've been given that people have assumed the stupidest things about me though. I mean, the most common stuff is like, I don't, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I want to get rid of prisons tomorrow and just have everyone running rampant and just murders. And I don't care about, you know, uh, women's safety anymore. And like, just very absurd things that will be assumed about, you know, someone who's an abolitionist. Um, and so like, I have to be willing to put up with that. I have to be willing to put in the work to, to learn myself. Um, so for instance, like when you start to uh, study abolition, you have to think about, you know, what is going to be done, you know, we can agree that the police don't provide the safety that, you know, we want, but we still want to provide the safety. So what does that look mm -hmm. like? How does that, what does that look like for, um, you know, for uh, women or trans women who are abused in relationships? What, you know, you have to, eventually you're going to have those conversations. So are you actually willing to, to put in that work? And the last thing I think for me was um, no matter what it is, is that you're not doing it alone. And, mm -hmm. you know, the last chapter of this book, um, that I, I just really love is um, she says it's called show up and don't travel alone. And, and that to me, I've realized as I've looked in my past, um, I've, I'm usually on teams for the most part, but there have been times where I'm not on teams and I am acting as a solo agent with like my vision of what I like, what Rafiq wants to do. And it just doesn't work that way. I don't, I don't, you shouldn't care what Rafiq wants to do. Honestly, you should care about what the movement that Rafiq is a part of and what that movement is building. What are we collectively coming together to like understand and work towards? Um, and, and so the last, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is, uh, you know, that realizing it's a, um, it's a struggle and it's a process. Um, I think part of my, uh, you know, Christian upbringing and, and one of the, probably more unhelpful kind of philosophies I developed, you know, was this idea of, uh, you know, eventually there's a day that's going to happen. Like, it's like, we're kind of waiting for something to happen and we'll feel it. And it could be in our own individual lives. Again, it could go back to this idea of like, we do these degrees, we get these, we get married, we have the kid, we have the house, whatever it is. It's just something about, you know, my Christian philosophy of like an all powerful, all loving God who is kind of like got my back that eventually like things are going to like click and there's a day of reckoning. I mean, even in, in the theology, right, there's a day where Jesus returns and like this radical revolutionary kind of event happens. And I, you know, I think I've had that baked into a lot of my thinking for myself, my you know, one day I'll meet that person. One day I'll get that degree. One day I'll have that, like all these things. And 
it never came. And actually like the thing mm-hmm. that I was building, it all crumbled. It all fell apart. Like in a year, like everything I felt like I was working towards in building fell apart in one year. Like I'm 31, like that, that I can't survive another thing like that. I can't survive another collapse where I like work towards something and have it fall apart in that way. And, and so partially what I've changed is, I mean, what is my outlook and what am I working towards every day? And it's, it's that is I'm, I'm struggling and working, you know, every day towards these things and I'm, I'm building it every day. Um, and I'm not really thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, the things that I hope to see and the things I hope to accomplish that I'll see in my own lifetime. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm going to, uh, you know, abolish all prisons and police in my lifetime. Um, and it's, it's something that I work towards every day. And it's something that I, I, I practice and, um, you know, something that I've, I also learned from, from Miriam Kaba is this idea of, of, you know, hope as a discipline, that this, it's, it's something you, you're practicing and you're, you're, you get better at it. And it's, um, you know, that I haven't thought of hope like that. I usually thought of it as, you know, you'll do certain things, you know, people ask you like, what gives you hope these days? And I get what that question's asking. And, um, I think there are things that give me hope, but at the same time, it gives you this sense of like, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll get this reward. And that will give you the hope you need to get through next hard thing that comes about next week. And that like, didn't work out for me. Like each week I was just like, pelted with things, you know, family members dying, you know, losing a job or whatever else it was. Um, And so now I'm just, I'm much more thinking like um, the things that I was, um, I wasn't actually building anything is I think that that's the realization I've come to is for those, like a lot of those, you know, a lot of my life is it's not me consciously saying, here's what I want to see in the world. What do I need to do to like actually enact that? It was much more like here's what I see in the world. I don't like that. And let me tell you what I want it to look like. And, and that's it. And I kind of sit with my arms crossed and kind of wait for something Mm -hmm. to happen, someone to do it or, you know, whatever else it is. Um, And that's just not the way I believe it works anymore. I think part of it is, is you will never get there. There is, I I don't, I honestly, and, 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 you know, this is maybe something that's changed in my, uh, you know, theology owner, but I don't believe in a promised land. And, and if there is one, it's one that we build every single day and it's going to be constantly changing and there's going to be new introductions of forms of oppression and greed and extraction. And it's something that we build and fight against every day. Um, I don't think there's a day when, you know, uh, you know, Jesus comes back and it just snaps and that stuff ends. I think it's, we, we will constantly be building and fighting and, um, you know, working towards that, you know, that vision that we have of the world that we want to live in. And I think for me, what, what has really changed is, um, is, you know, uh, again, it's something that we build and I also don't have necessarily the obligation of like, it's up to me to build it. Like mm-hmm. that's been like so toxic for, you know, people of our generation. I just feel like, especially millennials, like we just carry the weight of oppression on our shoulders and we're like, we have to solve this. And if we don't, like we're bad people and it's like, dude, no, like you can't, you're not going to, I'm sorry to tell you, Rafiq, like you're not going to, you know, do the things that you think you might do. And that's okay. It's not your job. It's, um, it's, it's your job to, to, to wake up every day and say like, how do I want to, you know, be the best version of myself in this world? That is not how I want it to be and, and work towards that, you know, every day. And, um, I, I think like, that to me is, is a much easier way to wake up and, 
figure out, you know, find out whatever the next terrible thing is. It's not, it's not slowing down. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I think like I reached a point where I'm like, it's not slowing down. It's also not, I don't know if it's increasing, right? Like, I think, you know, we just, we want time to be this history and time and future to be this thing that is starts good and becomes bad, gets worse and then gets better or whatever it is. And I don't know if that's really happening. Um, so I think, uh, that to me has been, has been a helpful concept of waking up every day and struggling and, and just trying to, you know, figure, figure shit out as we go. Um, and mm-hmm. I want to kind of be a little bit more permanently in that space because I think I, I maybe go through phases, um, and eventually like, all right, now I got it. Now I figured it out. What I need to do is I need to get this degree and do this thing and I'll have it like, and it's just like, how this never there is no it it's like I'm just kind of building things every day things and I love that you brought up um this idea of why and what and am I committed and specifically the reason I love that you brought this up is because I think right now in our world it's very evident that there's a lot of things to care about and there's a lot of voices that are fighting for people's attention And I think that it's almost like comatose, like you have to care about this because everyone's caring about this today. And tomorrow you need to care about this because everyone's caring about this. And the next day you need to be aware of wars and you need to care about Mm -hmm. them because everyone's caring about them. And that system in itself can be so exhausting and so draining and so defeating because in actuality, which what you're explaining, we're not capable of caring and doing something about everything. Yep. But we totally are capable of caring and doing something about something. And so I think what I kept hearing in your process was a re-identification of what that was. And it required honestly, a breaking down of who you are and will continue to require a breaking down of who you are if you keep asking these questions. And they're not easy questions to ask because you're right. At the end of the day, it's like, okay, even if you did accomplish everything on your to-do list, it didn't fix what you believe is the problem. And the problem is what's motivating you to wake up tomorrow and restart that to-do list, which can be extremely daunting and at some points really unhealthy yeah like if we're just focused on that to-do list if we're just focused on an outcome of what change will look like then we're exhausted and when we're exhausted those are when some of those other areas start breaking down mm-hmm. you know and I loved that you shared this process of one identifying in in abolition specifically and realizing like oh my gosh there none of this is coincidental. There are systems built for things to operate this way. Like this is way bigger than just one person standing up for something. It's going to mm-hmm. take a whole movement and it will probably be past our lifetime. Yeah. What I heard in that too was saying, okay, I have to start doing these mental health check-ins with myself because if I'm only focused on this really broken, really hurtful system, and that's all I'm incorporating into my life, then it becomes more and more difficult to wake up in the morning and say, what am I even doing? Mm -hmm. And so finding that balance, I think, is actually really 
really important. And I'm so glad that you hit on that and that you incorporated both the personal side of being an abolitionist. Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. And then also being a human being. Sometimes feel overwhelming because it's like, um, what, what it requires me to do, I actually can't do like in my life. Like I can't expect everyone to like go to all the meetings that I go to or to go to the protests that I go to like that. That's not really what I'm asking. So it's much more like in your given space and in your like given capacity, like what, what can you be doing to, you know, like resist this, this way of life. And um, I've just seen like people like do like really creative things to be involved in that, you know, uh, you know, I've, I know families who they and their kids get involved in like letter writing to, to family members, you know, to, to other parents who are incarcerated. Um, you know, there's, there's just a whole bunch of ways that I've seen people kind of do it. Um, and, and that to me has always been like an inspiring thing that it's like, I'm not the life I live, like whatever story you just heard from me is like pretty abnormal. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm like a model for, you know, anything, but I think more so is, is trying to think about, you know, what, how are we like actively working towards, um, you know, challenging ourselves and, you know, it's so cliche, but like, you know, we just, we get pretty comfortable. Something that I found to be really important. And I mean, in a lot of ways, what we do on a day-to-day basis is different. In some ways, I think there is a common ground of wanting to see things change and wanting to see um, people and systems and behavioral behaviors look different. And for, for me, I, I have a similar background of spending a lot of time being angry and not being sure on what to do with that anger because it didn't really work to argue with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really hard thing. I mean, even before this conversation started, we were talking about how really the only way you can be heard is if you're loud enough right now. And so arguing is such a prevalent way of having a voice and in actuality, um, it, I think when it comes down to it, like no one's changing their mind because of an argument, but they are changing their mind because of someone's experience. And so as much as I think, you know, and I think it's admirable to be like, yeah, I'm not that different. Like I'm not a superhero. I don't have an incredible, like totally life-changing story. But what I do have is an experience that I think is important enough to be shared. And that's why, I mean, I was really excited and really hopeful for you to share your story because I think when you get to be in a posture where you don't have to defend yourself and you just get to share your experience, it's, it's in, it's in that realm where there's a possibility of people having a changed perspective, right? You know? And so I think that is one thing that I'm really committed to is saying, Hey, how do we create spaces where people can share their experiences in a less defensive manner? Because again, there are so many voices that are fighting to be heard. And there are a lot of voices that need to be heard right now. Right. Like I've really struggled with that a ton. Cause I, you know, I think the, a lot of the spaces I've been in, uh, in the past, um, and they, you know, they've tended to be like uh, Christian evangelical spaces. You know, I think these are themes that have come up a lot in terms of uh, you know, pluralism, meeting people in the middle, and, you know, kind of a lot of, like, both sides-isms, and, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time at a church where, 
Um, you know, like for instance, the day that Donald Trump was elected president, like the sermon was uh, whatever the passage is like mourn with mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And, you know, I remember listening to them. I was like, what? How is that the sermon for this guy is really, I mean, like, let's be real. All these presidents are awful. They all, every single one is terrible. I, I'm sorry if, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm not trying to say they're all equally awful, but they're all running a very violent country. I'm sorry. But anyways, um, but, but at the same time, when that happened, I was like, what? How is that the message that it's just like people are happy that this dude became president and the people are sad, have equal reason to feel that way. And so I, you know, I think a lot of the spaces I've been in, when I have a new idea, what, you know, radical, I use the word radical, you know, to, to use Angela Davis, her definition is just grasping at the root. It's not as like crazy as, you know, some might think it is just like, you're trying to get at the root cause of an issue. And when you do that, it's never going to be welcomed. Like, I will promise you there's never been a single moment in history where there was an issue, a manufactured human-made issue, and someone presented the solution and everyone said, yes, okay, right? That's never happened. So like partially I, when I come to the table and identify an issue, it's always met with the same exact resistance. I'm now so used to it. And I've had to spend a lot of time trying to question and say like, am I closed off for like saying, I'm not going to spend time talking to this person who says just absurd things about me and takes my arguments and twists them. Am I closed off? Am I arrogant? Am I, uh, you know, far left, whatever title or whatever it was that people have been giving me. And I've come to the conclusion that no, I'm not. And actually like, you're the weirdo that you're telling me <laughs> I have to spend the next 40 years of my life entertaining conversations with people who are actually not interested in doing the thing that I'm asking them to do. So I've had to reframe the, the, the conversations I have and the groups that I'm organizing with. And, you know, like I, a lot of times I hear like we are in the most polarized, again, when we kind of talked about this, the most polarized we've ever been in like, no, we are not. Again, we were split up by a war by owning humans. So that's not the case, number one. But number two is it ends up becoming a distraction. Like I will be so distracted by the number of people who take issue with some of the things I'm saying who are not, they're not, they're just the people who are like watching the news and then like, that's it. They'll read one article and they turn the TV off and that's it. Dude, I'm thinking about this 12 hours a day. Like, do you think maybe I have some insight into this that could, that the questions I have maybe are a little bit different than the ones you have because you like, you know, read an Instagram post on this. Mm -hmm. So part of it is like recognizing that there are those of us who like identifying the leaders of a like social justice issue is a very hard thing to do. Like, I'm not going to say it's easy. The reason why it's hard is because these things are constantly being co-opted and constantly being taken and repackaged in a way. And then you have people who are like trying to make a buck off of it. So like, yeah, there are, there are people who are genuinely trying to make profit off of Black Lives Matter, the movement and the organization. It is, it is that straightforward. People, it came to a point where they're like, I can make money off this to, to buy, you know, mansions or whatever else it is. That's not okay. But again, like that's not all there is. There's so much more to it. And so like, I can't spend all my days saying, well, you know, when people say like, well, Rafiq, what about the rapists? What are you going to do about that? And I know immediately when people ask me that question, the way they ask it, 
they're not actually interested in hearing my answer. They're, what they're trying to say is like, your idea is bizarre and I don't want to hear it. That's fine. Sell me that instead of like act, trying to ask me a question. So um, I think like that is one thing I have really struggled with because I'm a people pleaser and I like, I, I like bringing people in. I really do. I like having education and discussions. And I did that in such an unstrategic way that the people I was bringing in and the people I was allowing to come into these conversations were ruining it for everyone. I want to go to a, a new place with a different set of people who are asking a whole different set of questions. And I want to learn from them. And when mm. I did that, people, I had a lot of people would say like, you're being very arrogant. You're being very closed off. You're only going to listen to people who are like you. I'm like, these people are not like me. I'm not, I'm not from a hood. I'm not black. I'm not criminalized. I'm learning from people who are not like me. I am not incarcerated, but that's who I want to spend. I wanted to spend a majority of my time. Now, I, I think I'm coming to a place where I'm like, I got to do a lot of really great learning and it was very concentrated. And now I'm like, I can probably have a hybrid situation where mm-hmm. um, I'm learning and I have those spaces and I have other spaces where it's more educational and more growing and learning. But I think the thing that changed for me is instead of popping into evangelical churches who like the idea of some of these social justice issues, but have no political will or interest to really you know, do what's necessary to, to get involved or to sacrifice their space or their resources or those things, it doesn't make sense for me to go to those places because it takes my time, it takes my energy. Um, and then oftentimes the message is actually then like, co-opted and transformed. So I've had to protect it a little bit more. Yeah. Which is really important, I think, to realize as especially in um yeah, like I mean, we were talking about churches and I think often um a place that should be safe to explore ideas and be open to people perceiving things different and having different experiences, it's really not in a lot of ways. And I think that that's an example for, for most areas though. I think education is, is one of those. I think um, just so much of our society is, is really uncomfortable with asking harder questions, Mm -hmm. which is something you're totally committed to doing. And so it makes sense that you feel uncomfortable. And I want that to be heard and seen and valued because it's in your uncomfortable position and your ability to still sit in that and say, well, I'm going to keep asking these questions, even if I'm rejected from this community or not invited in this one, or have to actually choose to not show up in this one. I think it's an important thing to recognize that when we're talking about breaking down cycles, it it is inevitable sometimes to feel like you're standing alone in that. And then it's also imperative that you remember you're not alone. So even though you're standing alone in some of these environments and some of these communities and some of these Facebook threads, you have to remember you're still not alone and that there's people watching you and listening to you saying, what questions are you asking? You know, so we'll wrap up um, with uh, honestly, just a reminder of I'm just really, I'm just all like very thankful that you're a human being who's asking tough questions. And I hear so much wisdom and knowledge and acceptance and appreciation for what you've learned. And then I also hear the counter of it's still not enough. And I'm still on this process of learning and 
having things fall apart and having to restructure. And um, I think that that is such an important thing for people to hear and understand that no matter how much education you get or how much experience you have, if you don't come back to asking yourselves why and what and what am I committed to, then growth is only outcome based, you know? And so we have to come back to that. And I'm just so thankful for, for your story and for your process. And I already have like about a bazillion ideas of how we can incorporate this more and more. Maybe we'll just have a whole like season of questions with Rafiq. Uh, yeah. And I, I, you know, I think like if I could leave like any parting words or whatever that, you know, I, I, in the beginning of the, the, the talk, you know, some of this idea of like that year, and it's been helpful for me to like have points in time to say like, all right, January, 2020 to January, January, 2022 was something wild for me. And what, whatever the time points were. And like, I just, the more people I talk to, the more I've realized, like, dude, that was, that was a lot for, for a whole bunch of reasons, whether it was just, the, you know, the fact that you were isolated in your house for as long as some people were, or the transitions or the losses, the re the, you know, whatever it was, there's a whole bunch of things that's happened. I think it's people owe it to themselves to like, kind of like reassess. And when I say that, like, you know, it, it's kind of the process I went through to reassess what, you know, I don't have to share that all in here is, was not the a way I advise people to do it. Like I was somewhat destructive. And, um, but I, I do think one of the things I have been proud of myself for doing was um, stopping and saying like, okay, I don't like what I'm doing or where I'm going or like how I'm doing. It. And I want to like reassess and like ask some questions and one of my good friends, I was talking to him about it, who he did this recently, and he ended up not making really that many changes. He ended up staying in like the job he was in, like he's reordering some things around his like relationships and friendships. But I think I, what I encourage everyone to do is like, to, yeah, reassess these things, like reassess your value system, re reassess, like, where are you getting your, you know, where are you deriving, you know, hope from, or how are you practicing that? Um, and, you know, to kind of reassess these things. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, I think like we, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, and I say, we, I think like our generation, um, you know, to, to want to change the world. And like, I think that's something like we heard a ton and, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty intense and like, I, you know, I'm, I'm I think I'm busted. Like, I'm just going to be this way the rest of my life, but I don't, you know, I think we need to also just like, um, simplify a little bit of what it means like to, to be, you know, good, caring people for each other. Um, you know, like I, some of the, the most uh, profound moments I've had in these past two years have been through um, somewhat like simple acts of kindness, but that they're regular. So it's, you mm -hmm. know, for example, one thing I do know is I have like whatever, however many friends that uh, um, I like just regularly text now. I like check in on like, I don't, I don't know if I used to do that. Maybe I did. But in, the, in these two years, I've stopped. Like I just stopped having friendships with people that I'm regularly in contact with that I know what's going on in their weeks. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's the case for everyone. I, I was very depressed and very isolated and pushed people away, but um, that simple act of like repeatedly being kind and checking in on my friends and like redeveloping those types of practices. Like um, I think we'll find like a lot of that just doesn't exist in our life anymore. Like, do you, you know, you give people rides regularly. Do you, you know, like, are you delivering food? Are you cooking for people? Like, I don't know. I think I just like, I wonder like how much of that did we just like stop doing and 
um, the world is not going to help us like rebuild that. Like that's something we have to rebuild for ourselves. So um, I just, you know, lastly, I, I like the idea of you said, like, how do we care for people who are, you know, doing this work? And, you know, I just like, I think like not everyone needs to be, you know, doing what I do and how I do it and, you know, other, you know, whatever people very intense into this work and not everyone needs to leave their nine to five to be, you know, activists, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, how are, yeah, how are you supporting other people? How are you caring for other people that, you know, that do this type of work? And um, how do you, you know, leverage your positions and your, um, you know, your opportunities and, and to, in the spaces you're in to resist in the same way. So there's just so many ways to do it. And it's like, we'll, we'll only know, like, you know, when, when we're in, you know, com community together and we're talking about this and, you know, figuring out ways that we can partner together creatively and, uh, you know, oh, you're an artist, let's, you know, work on this project together, whatever it is. So, um, that's the last thing I'll say is to, you know, just, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more simple with how we think about, you know, doing good in this world and like regularly practicing it um, instead of trying to find, you know, such, you know, I don't know, there's that new TV show, the like, it's kind of like America's got talent, but for like activists or whatever, it's like, dude, just stop, stop doing that <laughs> stuff. Like, um, anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that you just simplified this this entire thing into I hear three things so and that's what we'll close with one ask good questions ask yourself good questions ask other people good questions keep asking questions and then two be open to changing your mind which is something I think as a world we could just do a lot better at is allowing people to just say I think I was wrong about this and change your mind and allow yourself to change your mind, even if you have just done 10 years of education or whatever, to just say, I think I actually want to change my mind. And then the third one, which I just love, is just be kind, like show up for people and be kind. And if you want to support Rafiq, make him a homemade dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> or Cash App. There we go. We'll put that in the. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the link below. I'm not shy. <laughs>